JR. Good morning, Doug. Happy Monday morning to you. Happy Monday to you as well. So uh, a previous conversation we had, we talked about ghosting and, and ghosting is leaving, uh, leaving, but still being there. It's like, you've just disappeared. You've, you've fallen off the face of the earth and no one knows what happened or why. Um, but there are also people within churches who, who leave well mm. and who transition out well. And so, yeah, I just think it'd be good for us to have a, a conversation about that. I think sometimes as pastors, we don't even know how do we have that conversation, what can that look like? It's vulnerable. It's hard. It's difficult. And so, yeah. And we get that email or that phone call that says, hey, pastor, like to get together with you to talk a little bit about our family. <laughs> and you get that sense, that meter goes off in your head, right? Like, oh, <laughs> I think this might be yes. the it's not you, it's me breakup conversation yeah. that this family or this person is going to leave the church. So at mm-hmm. least they didn't ghost, right. they didn't fall off the face of the earth. They no want to have a conversation with you, which is really encouraging. But Doug, I'm curious, what happens when someone says that to you? How do you emotionally prepare for that conversation when you come into it? I, I always feel like you have a, you're right. There's a sense that you get when someone, I don't know if it's a tone, if it's some kind of radar that that's just in our brains from you know, breakups from when we were teenagers or, <laughs> or what. Um, but I, I think for me, uh, I, I noticed there's a whole range of emotions. I, I'll go from being like, oh, it's probably nothing to, oh, they're probably leaving because of, and I'll fill in the blanks of all these different things. Um, and I think when I finally bring it before the Lord and just hold the person in front of the Lord, I recognize they're a person and God must, I trust that God is doing work in their life as he's doing work in my life. And so I have to trust that he's up to something. And so I think, I think the danger is there are times when I'm, when I'm unhealthy, where I will begin to write my net, write a narrative. And that narrative is never positive. Yeah. Uh, I, I might be excited that they're leaving, but it's, it's a narrative of, you know, crash and burn and everything's terrible. But yeah, I think, and sometimes, you know, ashamed, you know, I'm ashamed of it, but there are times I just walk in with anger of like, you know, yeah. what? you know, I'm thinking like the, the thing playing in my head is like, well, I've done this and I've done that and me and me, you know, like I've cared for this and I've watched over that and realizing that is so selfish and unhealthy. Um, so yeah, the, how about you? What are some of the internal processes that happen in you when you've had those conversations? Yeah, I feel like I want to uh, defend myself, uh, even protect myself, try to put on some armor. And so for me, I always want to give a calm exterior, you know, smile, nod, listen well, have a low tone, you know, <laughs> ask questions, be receptive. But inside, yeah, I mean, I, I, I sometimes struggle with those things like, oh, I, 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 dedicated your kid, you know, like when you had marriage problems, like I, I was there with you, you know, when you fill in the blank, you know, when you were in the hospital, we can be. And so those are hard. And sometimes those conversations are, uh, difficult and awkward and they give an answer and you're like, what, that's why you're leaving. Are you kidding me? Um, that are unrealistic expectations, but other times you go, I I think I feel conflicted or I say, we love you. We will miss you. There's a selfishness of like, no, don't go. I never try to convince them to stay. Most of the times their minds are made up, but there's also a sense of gratitude. And I, sometimes I find myself the first words out of my mouth are thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for all you've done. And try to think of several specific things that they've done that we can, Hey, you've volunteered with this. You've helped with that. You really shaped this particular ministry in our church, but also thank you for coming and talking to me. 
this could be potentially very awkward or intimidating. And thank you for trusting me by telling me because when you don't tell us and you just go, it hurts even more. So even though this is awkward, what's more awkward is if you left and I bumped into you at the park or something. <laughs> so I, I think about that and I think that's that's really good. So I ask a lot of questions, help me understand, um, you know, what's the reason? Do I need to own anything? But uh, a pastor a few years ago, we were talking about this a few minutes ago, but a pastor a few years ago, he, uh, he gave me four, I think he called them like, exit interview questions, <laughs> mm. uh, like you would, you know, in an HR department, sort of when you're transitioning from a job, you have an exit interview. We wouldn't necessarily call it that, but during that, I would, um, I, I've learned from him these four questions, which have been super helpful. And they seem to keep a uh, relationship at the forefront and Jesus honored. But uh, the first one is, what would you like to tell leadership? You know, uh, and by the way, this doesn't mean that they have to share why they're leaving, but is there anything you'd want leadership to know, which I think is is really good and, and is really important uh, in that. Um, and sometimes it's if someone asks why is this family leaving, how would you want me to answer that, right? So in some ways, just communication clearly as to where are they? I haven't seen them. Are they still around? No, they're not. Why not? So what would you like to tell leadership? Number one, number two, is there anything spiritually and relationally you need to be released from? And this is also a good place to say, do I need to own anything? Have I hurt you? Mm. Do I need to ask for your forgiveness about anything that I've done uh, as you transition? Number three, how can we pray for you and encourage you moving forward? And uh, oftentimes I'll close in prayer in that conversation to pray for them for what they said. And number four, what type of communication would would you like or would we like moving forward, right? Because there's always that like, we've been friends, but now we're transitioning. And I think I'm supposed to just leave them alone because they wanted space, right? They're no longer choosing to be a part of this community. And then they're, I find out later they're really hurt. They never talk to me anymore. I'm like, you, you transitioned. Like yeah. I thought you wanted space, but they wanted just occasional check-ins. I didn't know that or vice versa. Occasionally I'll text them or check in and say, how are you doing? How are things? And they're like, dude, leave me alone. Like we left the church. Don't talk to us. And so I think that's an awkward conversation, but a good one of what does communication look like moving forward here? So um, anyway, what, what, what do you do? What Are there certain questions you ask or how do you handle that yeah. uh, when you're in those conversations, Doug? Well, very similar. I, I, I really appreciate the, the last question. I mean, I, I think the questions you asked, very similar. I just had this recently and uh, I, I really... It's one of those questions that always has my stomach in knots, but it's probably the most important question. It's like, have I hurt you? Mm. Because even in that moment, my my hope is that as they leave Renew or the, whatever church, yeah. that they they have like the taste of the gospel on their lips, that they see how they're loved and how even in this, that you know, pastors aren't perfect people, and we we know that, and we totally get that. And we understand that, but it's one of those things that I think is really important. And also the, the define the relationship question at the end of yeah, like, what yeah. does it look like for us to move forward? Is it goodbye so long? Is it, um, but I think even being realistic, uh, I just briefly thinking about, um, a friend who said some of the effective, Oh, you know, we've, I, I was with this family for gosh, um, was that their wedding? So probably like 10, 10 to 12 years. And, um, 
they left a couple of years ago. And it was so interesting because some of the language was, you know, we're, we're still going to stay tight and it's, you know, we don't see a lot changing. And and from being around these before, I'm like, it's going to change. I mean, that's yeah. just what happens. And so yep. how do you help people have realistic expectations? And I think what hurt is uh, I found out that they had their baby, not from them, but through Facebook. Yeah. And that was one of those that moments hurts. of like, you know, I thought it was going to be different, but again, yeah. also realizing it's just important to define that. And even that's a, that's a part of release too, to say, Hey, you know, you want me to call every week, but how is that going to help you get fully connected into the community that you feel God calling you to? Yeah. Great. And so maybe a, a healthier expectation is don't be a stranger. Um, and, and we'll see what that looks like moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. I mean, it just, I think they're always going to be awkward. Mm-hmm. I think they get a little bit better. And when the, I'm gospel healthy, I'm able to say afterwards walking home or driving home. Okay. That hurts. That stings. We're going to miss them. I can't take this personally. This is not about me, but, uh, and I do need to move on and say, Lord, I entrust them to your hands, you know, and and if they're going to thrive in another place, I pray blessing on that new place, the way they've benefited us relationally, and even how they've given of their time and their energy and their resources. We pray blessing on that church with them. Yes. So it, when I'm in healthier places, yes. I'm able to do that. Yeah. Uh, but one, it's hard. <laughs> one of my favorite places is to send an email to the pastor yes. of the church that they're going to and say, here is this family whom I love. and Especially whom, when they leave well. Yes. Whom for the we, right yeah, reasons. Yes, exactly. It's not all the time. It's when we find those healthy people who've left well, have sensed that time to move on, but to give them blessing and to send that pastor of that church an email and say, these people are rock stars. Yeah. Like you're, you know, I trust you with them and love them well. And they, they have left well. And I want you to know that as they come in, that they've left well, that, yeah. that is a rare email, Yeah, but that is one of my favorite ones to craft. Yeah. And sometimes it's the other way where I remember a family transitioned, uh, for good reasons, it was hard, it stung, but it was nothing immature, I should just say. Um, but they transitioned to a church where I know the pastor and the pastor actually called me and said, hey, I know this family has been a part of your church for a long time. Now they're showing up at our church. What's the story? Is everything okay? And I love, they weren't looking for dirt or gossip. They just were saying like, hey, I just want this to be healthy. And I love that they asked in the spirit of really just wanting to make sure there was unity um, uh, between our churches, but also to try to help them. And I was able to say, they are great leaders. They have invested in this way. They're very faithful. We're sad they're gone. There's leaving a hole in our ship a little bit, but at the same time, they're a huge blessing to what yes. is going there. And we release them, we bless them, and you just count yourself um, blessed by the Lord to have them feeling called to your church because they're really great at these areas. And so- Everything's good. There's no backstory. We bless them. It's sad, but we bless them. And the pastor's like, great, man, that's good. And then I'm able to, when I see this pastor who I saw a few, just three days ago for lunch, say, how, how's that family doing? You know, how are things going? And so that's good. It's still hard. It's still awkward, but, right. um, but it's still really, really fantastic. So yeah. it's, it's, it's the actual, it's not you, it's me conversation. <laughs> sure. like the real one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was a friend of mine. Well, I think if, well, here's a question. If you could give every single person in the church, like a, here's how to leave well, 
Uh, I know you and I preached on that uh, a while yeah, we back. Did. Uh, we did. But yeah, what, what like what's one or two things that you would say would be absolute if you're leaving. If you're leaving, yeah. Um, have a conversation hmm. with the pastor. <laughs> number one, don't ghost. Right. Uh, number two, um, maybe uh, consider sharing some things where you've been blessed yes. by the church. You know, say, so have grown in this area, or your teaching when you taught on that has really really helped my growth. Or um, I've had some great relationships. I've connected with these people. Um, but uh, the other one I said, just be honest. Like I think it's really hard when we sit there and we listen to people. And I think you mentioned earlier in our conversation before we were on the air of like that's not really the whole truth. You know, like they, they probably told me 70% of the truth or 80%, but there's probably something else going on there. <laughs> and uh, that's hard. And we just have to give people the benefit of the doubt, but I would just encourage people like be courageous mm. and speak as Paul says, speak the truth in love. We can't love people if we aren't telling them the truth. And sometimes we can speak the truth in the most unloving of ways. So we've got a double major in, being honest and honoring at the same time. So what would you say, Doug? Yeah, I, I would agree with all those. The only thing I would add is give us more of a runway. Don't Good. Don't, don't Good. invite us in. Yes. Like we've made up our mind and here's what we're doing. Yes, yes. Invite us in the beginning or in the middle where it's like, hey, we've been kind of sensing. Yes, Can those you are the help best, aren't they? That? Oh my gosh. They're hard to hear, but yeah. just say, we're trying to discern this. Yes. Will you help us? We just want to be honest with you here. Yes, I'm and, so glad you brought this and up, I've, Doug. I have appreciated, I can think of three families that have left and I can, I can just, I've, those conversations just, whenever I think of those families, whenever I see those families, I smile. Yeah, because great. it wasn't just a here's what we've decided. It's like here's here's what we're sensing. Can you help us move yeah, through that? Here are and, the questions we're asking in this season. Will you pray for yes. us? Yes. Yeah. Because it is a relational. I mean, churches are relational, and yeah. and and again, this isn't just moving jobs. This is moving family. I mean, it's it's transitioning into other families, and you know, we don't have an ecclesiology that says our church is the only family. We look at all sure. of our churches as part of this bigger family, but we want to bless and send well. Yeah. Um, one of my friends, uh, he's a pastor out in California. He sent me this thing that they do with, with their church called a litany of farewell. Oh, wow. And it is this, and whenever a family leaves or whenever a person leaves their church, they have, I'll, we'll add it to the show notes, but it is this beautiful prayer um, on just blessing as folks leave well. And I love the way that wow. that sends people off in a yeah. good way. back uh, to continue in this conversation. And uh, you mentioned a statistic that Doug and I were somewhat surprised about. So 23% of pastors have some sort of mental illness. Is that is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And then you also said something that really startled me, that that's about the national average. Uh, what are we as pastors leading churches how are we to approach this issue? How do we be good pastors and make sure we're pastoring and discipling our churches to think about those that struggle with mental yeah. illness? Yeah. Well, thanks for having me back. And I think it's important to not just assume it isn't there because no one's telling you. And if you begin to address it publicly, people will start coming out of the woodwork. 
there was an occasion where I decided I'm going to preach on the church and mental illness. And I decided to take from a passage where Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God and healing diseases and sicknesses and saying, look how Jesus was paying attention to the whole person, that integrated ministry we kind of talked about last time. After I preached, a person came up to me who had been in the church a long time, and he said, I'm taking my daughter to a psychiatrist tomorrow. I didn't know I could talk about that here until today. Mm. And I thought, internally, I work in the mental health field, and I'm on staff at our church, and you didn't know that our church was a place you could bring this up. If he didn't think my church was, how many other people, either in my church or in other churches without mental health professionals on staff, assume just because they breathe the air of church culture, this isn't the sort of thing you talk about. And I've seen when people, I've been to different churches who've had like mental health Sundays, uh, May is Mental Health Month. And is that one church just locally um, last month? And three people shared their stories. And when people share their stories, other people start saying, you know, similar to the Me Too movement, Me Too, that's my experience. So I'd really encourage pastors to not just assume it isn't an issue because people aren't bringing it up. We need to be the catalyst for bringing it up in whatever way makes sense in our particular community. Mm. So mm. you mentioned, I mean, I feel like a lot of that is really around the idea of the church being a safe place. Yep. And some of some of our listeners are probably thinking, wow, well, if I talk about it, then that means that I have to be able to do something about it. So my sense is that might even bring up a bit of anxiety in leaders. Like, what do we do? I mean, how if, if you're someone who doesn't have any kind of mental mental illness in your background or in your lived experience, like, what do you do next? I mean, you talk about it and then you get people coming out of the woodwork wanting to have conversations or recognizing that that's something that they're struggling with or living with. What, what is a pastor to do? I think I want to start simple by saying what you do already will be significant by which I mean in the mental health system, there are certain what they call recovery values things like hope, community, and empowerment. And they say for anyone to move forward in their recovery, you need to have these these things present. Well, churches at their best provide the sort of hope, community, and empowerment. You know, we all have a spiritual gift that is hard for the best service. And I say this as a service provider in the mental health field, the best service to offer. I think just giving community to people, building relationships can be huge because a lot of times, I say this on my mental health side, the mobile psych rehab program I directed for years, we would have a lot of people that we would discharge to no service. We would discharge to nothing. We would use words like community integration and socialization, but there are few places in the community where you can experience concrete forms of relationship and the gathering of people together. So I do want to say, just empower the church maybe to say, There are some things you can right away do, which is just being you. And we'll get into maybe later, how do you build relationships with your local human service providers where you can do that for more and more people. But just being you can be really essential to someone's recovery in their Mm. mental health. Mm. Mm. What would you want to say to every pastor listening about mental health health and and wellness? Take it whatever direction you want. What do we need to know? I think it's important to watch out for simplistic assessment. And that can go in a couple different directions. One is sort of being an armchair psychiatrist if you're a pastor. A lot of pastors think, for me to do this work well, I need to memorize 
the DSM, the Diagnostic <laughs> and Statistical Manual. And how thick is that now? Uh, yeah, exactly. It grows with every new hundreds installment. And We're at the pages. fifth one right now. <laughs> and new disorders every time. And I need to memorize that and know exactly what to do. Mm. And oftentimes that can actually do more harm than good because you may not know. And also you might label someone in a way that doesn't even help. Uh, you guys both know my colleague, Mark Bors. And Mark's always said something that struck me. It says, a, a diagnosis is helpful if it helps you know how to be with someone when you're with them. <laughs> mm-hmm. A diagnosis is helpful if it helps you know how to be with someone when you're with them. Like, for instance, if someone has Asperger's, I know now it's just usually referred to as being on the autistic spectrum. But if someone has Asperger's, you know, communicating with them in concrete ways versus abstract ways is really helpful. Yeah. Wow, that diagnosis has helped me know how to be with you. But just to say, oh, you're bipolar, oh, you're schizophrenic, that can really label someone in a way that I, I was struck by the last episode. You had wanted to emphasize where is our identity? And I think this is a place where the church can really be strong instead of giving someone the identity of a label. You know, even the mental health system says, use person first language. Say this is Bob who has experiences depression, Bob who experiences schizophrenia rather than there's a schizophrenic. Mm. The church wow, can be a place great. that says your identity is in Christ first and foremost. That's great. And this is an experience that is part of the human dilemma, but it's not who you are. I also think simplistic assessment on the side of you're going through this, therefore it's sin is a problem. Whether you're on the mental health side or the church side, if all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. Mm. So, oh, if I've got the sin hammer, like I know this hammer, I can use this. Or if I've got Mm. the mental health diagnosis sickness hammer, I can use that. Instead of saying, as we did last episode, like, how can we think in both and ways that says there's a lot going on here? There was a person I had helped years ago who just chewed me out, cursed me out, fired me one day. It's not my employer. It was like someone I was trying to help. Mm. And I came back. Here's another shout out to my friend, Mark. Came (laughs) back to Mark and said, Mark, why is this person screaming at me and cursing at me? Is it because of the fact that, you know, she sins, we all sin. And she's hurtful with her words. Read the book of James, right? (laughs) Is it that she's gone through trauma because her husband cheated on her? Is it the poverty that now since her divorce, she's like lost so much that she's living in in much more poverty and is stressed about helping her kids? Is it because her mental health is in a bad place? And Mark said, yeah. (laughs) His point being trying to parse out causality and say, this is only one causal factor and all that. And now I'm going to nail that piece versus saying, no, I've got to pay attention to all those areas Mm. and walking with that person. And maybe first, even before that, I need to be with them. Think of like Job's friends before beginning to say, oh, I know this is the sin of idolatry. I know this is the sin. I mean, Mm. John says, if we say we're without sin, we're lying. So I'm not saying here that Mm -hmm. sin's, sin's there. It's just, let's not immediately say we know that everything you're going through has to be a sin issue. Because we just may not know that. Yeah. Yeah. That's That's really, it's really important because Jesus humanizes people and is with them before Mm. he heals them. And I feel it's almost like I don't have to buy into the lie that I have to be an expert on every single diagnosis or all this stuff, but I can be an expert in the gospel Yeah, and I can know the love of Christ and I can share that love of Christ. And I, my sense is pastors hearing that, that is almost like a like permission to say, key, I, I just, I appreciate so much this idea of just 
be you, do what you do best, love people well, be present to them. And yeah, some of the skills that I, I, I'm sure you're going to get into are helpful to figure out how we do these things. But I just find that so encouraging to recognize that we just need to love people well and be with mm -hmm. them. And my sense is that can be really difficult and challenging uh, for some of the folks that may be within our churches. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, what would you have to say to pastors who are wrestling with, well, you know, Dave, you haven't been to my church. You haven't yeah. met so-and-so. Right. So a couple of things. One is start with the relationship. As we sometimes say at Access, relationship is the vehicle for change. So before anything else, can your support come out of a relationship? It's going to mean much more, you know, when, when Jesus' disciples said, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither sinned. You know, they immediately went to the sin issue. It's much better to go to the sin issue after you've been sitting with someone in relationship for some time and saying, I think I'm seeing a pattern here. Um, and I think, you know, how can we talk about that? Have sort of a graduated response. I'm going to start with, Start with grace. And if I need to challenge you a little bit over time, you know, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to start with just walking alongside of you. And I would also say to some people uh, or some pastors who are trying to think through, how do I come alongside this person? They're saying things that are just confusing me. Respond to the emotion, not the content. It's really easy to want to respond to the content of what someone's saying. You know, I, I have someone who used to tell me I am a uh, member of the CIA and he would try to convince me of this. And early in my career, I would be able to factually say, well, you're not in the CIA because I actually have family in the federal government. And I need the new different background checks. Like I can go through and <laughs> tell you why I know you're not in the CIA. But what someone had said, there's a book called Giving and Taking Help, which I think this idea came out of. His name is Alan Keith Lucas. And um, when you respond to the emotion, you get much farther. Because if you're able to, why was he telling me he was in the CIA? Well, number one, he was afraid of this interaction, who am I as this guy from the mental health field coming out to see him? Uh, so he was he was afraid. He wanted to let me know he was someone important. So he has some insecurity mm. going on there. I've just seen it time and time again that being able to reflect, man, it, you seem really angry or you seem afraid of what's going on, get me farther than just trying to rationalize with someone who's maybe in a bad place in their depression or in a bad place in, in another way. Wow, that's great. Struggles. That may not just help with mental health. That might help in marriage. <laughs> 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 What's behind the emotion on that? So that's great. I, I, I'm thinking as we're talking here, and, and in the earlier episode, we talked about de uh, depression and suicide. And there have been two individuals at our church where uh, I've sat in a living room where they've said, I'm suicidal. Uh, one, uh, you know, had a bottle of pills and said, I'm going to go swallow this. And eventually over a period of time, convincing them to hand me the bottle and then mm -hmm. that we're going to go get some help for you. Now, e even with that though, I'm sitting there in my living room or in, in their living room and I'm, I'm going, I don't know what to do right now. Yeah. I, I just, I'm going to try and the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to help me. And, and I'm not necessarily looking for a checklist, but mm -hmm. what would be if we're in those situations where there's a, an episode of, uh, there's some sort of breakdown or someone says I'm suicidal right now and I have a plan just be ridiculously practical. Yeah. What should we do? Do we call the police? Do we pray for them? What would be a good yeah. uh, plan moving forward? So some of what I'm going to say comes out of a couple of different schools of thought. So I'm not want to at least state it because I'm not making it up. Um, one is from uh, the ASSIST training, which is Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training. And the other is QPR, which is Question, Persuade, Refer. And those are both trainings 
that are national and that any church can get and that I've given. One of the things we'll talk about is asking clearly and directly. Now, mm. there's a difference between the person who comes up to us and says, I'm thinking about suicide, or the person who's coming up to us or we're going up to them and we're going, I don't know if they're thinking about suicide. So maybe I want to start with that person first. Yeah, good. You don't know. Good. Um, there's no formula for saying, I know if a person's going through A, B, or C experiences, they're thinking about it. And if they're going through another three, they're not thinking about it because the common element oftentimes is loss because a kid who failed on a test uh, might attach to that the sort of significance that would lead to suicide that we might think, what? An adult might say, I've lost my job. I'm thinking about suicide. Other of us, I lost my job. I hated my job, right? Mm. So Mm. that leaves you to always go, I'm not sure if I should ask. What I would say is if you're not sure you should ask, you should ask. It's always better to ask than not ask. Now, we don't want to be weird and asking Mm -hmm. everybody having a bad day. Mm -hmm. But if you're what they call an assist exploring invitations, is someone inviting you? Sometimes they are actually inviting you to ask. They're thinking, does anyone care enough to actually ask Mm. me? You read, uh, look, Google the story of Kevin Hines, just his desire before he jumped off a bridge and he survived. Will someone ask me? If anyone asks me, I won't jump off this bridge. You ask clearly and directly. You want to ask clearly and directly because if you look uncomfortable asking, if you look like you're asking, like, you don't want to like take your life, do you? Like that person's going to know you can't handle this conversation. But if you ask clearly and directly and they're not thinking about it, you have communicated to them that there's at least one person in the world that if they ever are thinking about it in the future, mm. you're someone they can talk to about and it. And I want to drill down because this is so important. I mean, this this conversation could save lives. Mm-hmm. So I want us to be really clear. Uh, and I don't necessarily want to role play, but you talked about how we shouldn't do it. Yeah. Can you just as clearly and directly as you can, just tell us how you might ask in a, yeah. a very appropriate way. Yeah, there's a few different ways that someone could ask, but you might say, you know, say talking to a person named Jim, Jim, some of the things you've said have just made me wonder, are you thinking about killing yourself? Mm. Jim, some of the things you've said made me think, are you considering suicide? Are you thinking about ending your life? You know, any of those are clear enough and direct enough that a person knows what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. If you just ask about cutting or self-harm, do you want to do harm to yourself? Because there are some people who cut who aren't thinking about suicide because the cutting could be leading to ways of handling anxiety, for example. Mm. That's not going to be as clear. It could be a primer question for the next one that's clear and direct. So you want to ask clearly and directly. I would say after you do that, you want to listen now. What? Why do you want to do that? Or if you want to take away the why, because sometimes that can sound interrogative. Tell me more about what led you to this place where you're thinking about it. And you want to go there because you want to really understand the person and you want them to know you're trying to understand them. You don't want to immediately go into problem solving mode. Don't do that. You need to, we're going to call hotline right now. You need to talk to this person because if you go there, the person's not going to feel like you're listening to them. They're not going to feel like you really understand them. And you're in some ways just dealing with your own anxiety rather than dealing with what's actually in front of you. Mm. And uh, we could talk more about it, but I just want to give maybe this couple more things. Yeah, please. To kind of see your way through it. Again, this could be like all day conversation. Um, All you need is one enough, one reason the person could have to want to live today. They could have 15 reasons for wanting to end their life. But if there's one reason that's strong enough to keep that life side of them alive, Mm. um, there's a lot of ambivalence for people thinking about suicide. There's a part of me that wants to live, a part of me that, 
that doesn't, if there's just one thing that they can identify that for themselves is reason enough to live today, then that can form a sort of turning point for them. And then the question becomes, if they're willing to do that for today, how can you connect them with other people? It should never be you left to yourself. I know a lot of pastors have called our mobile crisis hotline. Wherever you are listening to this, there should be a mobile crisis team, or at least a crisis team in your county, that if you look up your county's website, will have that information. And if you know that number, put that number into your phone and call them while you're with the person. Or uh, if you're not a pastor listening and you call your pastor, call someone else from your church, include other people that could be in that conversation with you. Yeah. Several years ago, Dave, that was so practical, that advice you gave me. Because I reached out, there was a situation, I'm like, I don't know what to do here. And you were super helpful. You were calm. And you said, I'm going to email you some numbers of some hotline uh, numbers for our community, for our county. And you said, I want you to type them in your phone and and just have them there so you don't have to worry about looking them up or whatever. Uh, I don't think that was your way of saying, leave me alone. Uh, no, yeah, it was a no. little bit, but, <laughs> little bit. <laughs> but it was super helpful because then about a year later, I did have a situation come up and I did call the number because it was already in my phone. And so thank you for encouraging me to do that. That was, that was huge in, in uh, helping me do that. So earlier we talked about RAP, uh, mm-hmm. a RAP plan. Um, give, give us the acronym yeah. of RAP again. It's Wellness and Recovery Action Plan, W-R-A-P. Yeah. So with a RAP, uh, is that something that we should just allow the professionals to do? Or is that something that we can even encourage people in our uh, community and in our in our churches yeah. who are um, mentally vulnerable, maybe yeah. we can call them that? I've seen both take place. There's certainly in a lot of communities, because this now has become a national thing. And by the way, the Copeland Center, it's not coming from a Christian perspective, but I think they've touched on some things from their lived experience of mental illness that could be wise for us as as followers of Christ to consider as well. And there are a lot of times, like even here in Lansdale, where we're discussing this right now, they have rap groups at the local library where they'll teach you how to do it and walk with it through you. And I've had some people I've shared rap plans with who've said, can you like help me sort through this? But I do think that given what we talked about before, the um, the wellness toolbox, the daily maintenance plan, the triggers, the bad days plan or crisis plan, as we call them, those are things that I think are worth people just saying, I'm going to try that out. I'm going to at least start off whether that's on a napkin or whether that's in my laptop, but having something down on paper as a starting point can be really helpful to just understanding your experience more. Mm-hmm. So I, I would want to encourage pastors to, to be empowered to do that with people. And if you begin to say, I oh, mean, there's a part of this that's tripping me up. Um, I'd always want you to feel free to give me a call or email me and I can point you the direction of maybe groups that might be in your area that might be mm-hmm. able to provide further help. Mm-hmm. And speaking of rap plans, you, uh, Access Services has worked with a few individuals in our congregation. You've actually recommended and pointed these individuals to come to our faith community, which they've been such a gift. They're not a problem to be fixed or someone to be managed. They have taught us much about God and community um, in terms of their own struggle with mental health. But one of the things that's been really helpful is because you and your team have put together a rap plan in their clear moments— when they call, and I'm thinking of one individual, when when I was called by this individual 
and they said, I'm in a dark place and uh, I'm working my my rap plan right now. And I said, well, what's number one? And they said, call my pastor. <laughs> That's why I'm calling you. <laughs> and and I oftentimes I'm like, I'm not sure what to do here. Lord, yeah. help me. But then it was, well, what else is on the plan? What's number two? And that was incredibly helpful. It helped me relax knowing they had a plan and they had their plan in front of them. In fact, this person had submitted their plan to me, but they also had it in front of them. So it just helped me relax yeah. knowing a plan was well, put I together. So thank thing you. you're pointing out there is the value too of collaborate, collaborative partnerships yeah. between churches and organizations in your community, because there are things that we can't do at access. And we've been so encouraged by the way Renew has been able to walk alongside people mm. and give community in a way that we can't to people mm. as a service provider. And it's been encouraging at times when you guys have called us up and say, Hey, is there something that, you know, we could talk through and are there any services you have for this sort of uh, need I'm looking at? And I think just for pastors to reach out and find out what are those organizations in their own community. If nothing else, every community should have a um, community behavioral health center locally that would have case managers, therapists, psychiatrists. And I, I had once moderated a discussion between a group of pastors. It was actually one that you were at. Yeah. Doug. I've done another one, but at that, we had about 40 mental health providers, three pastors. And one of the pastors who were there, not Doug, said during it, I didn't even know any of you guys existed. <laughs> And I had a drug and alcohol provider come to me afterwards and said, I've never even been part of a conversation like this. So you've got these siloed supports, this world of providers saying, we're trying to help people. We're getting calls every day. And then you, these pastors saying, we're trying to help people every day. And there's real opportunities, not only to partner together, but for the church to have some really good conversations, I would say, spiritual conversations, make new relationships with people. I, I I've had plenty of conversations with mental health staff where I'm talking about these issues of we need to be holistic. We need to pay attention to the spiritual journeys of people that we serve. And I've had mental health staff come up to me and go, I'm kind of on my own spiritual journey. And like, could we get coffee and talk? So I guess I'm trying to encourage pastors to say there's this whole world of supports out there where there are multiple benefits to you building those relationships. Now, I've had multiple pastors say to me almost this exact phrase, I don't refer to anybody because I don't know who I can trust. So part of this is a trial and error process of figuring out as a pastor, who can I trust in my communities? And once you find who you can trust, using them uh, around to collaborate with. And Dave, you have done this so well. I, I feel like for our particular community, you have been such a resource to, I know not just our church, but so many other churches. And I love the posture that you have in terms of recognizing. And I think it's because of the hats that you wear, that you see the value of both of them, but you don't look at it as either or, but it's both and. Um, and I've just appreciated that so much. And I, my hope is that the pastors listening and the leaders listening find those people of peace like yourself mm -hmm. who recognize the, the stuff, but kind of taking this a little bit of a different direction. So, you know, we talked about suicide earlier and helping to prevent that, but what happens in a church how does a church begin to, to, to talk about this when the person has the plan and all the things have gone the way that it should be kind of like in the same situation as, as Andrews uh, Stockland um, in California, where, you know, he would talk about depression and then he ended his life by suicide. 
how would a church begin to talk about that publicly? Like mm -hmm. after that, I mean, I know yeah. you've been called into some of those situations, but even thinking what's helpful, like what would be important for pastors to know dealing with that? Uh, mm -hmm. Probably even youth pastors, especially as yeah. they've had to wrestle with some of these things. It's often been helpful to do at least a couple of things. One is I think people struggle with how do I speak about these events in ways that are respectful to the people that have been through them um, and yet also keep to this conviction that we have that suicide is we're concerned about suicide and, and we don't want people taking this this step. And I think being able as a church to shoot for how can I hold together both conviction and compassion? That I can have a conviction as to the value of life for everybody, for our lives, for for everyone's life as a gift, while also having compassion for the fact that when some people get to that place, um, it, it can sometimes feel like they have no other options, even though there may be options. I remember one person who eventually took his life, who's a poet, who said, it often feels to someone who's going to take their life like they're on the edge of a burning building. They don't want to jump, but when they look at the heat and the smoke in the building, they just feel like there's no other options. So being able to hold that in your mind as a pastor when you're communicating to your church around just being compassionate about the people uh, who maybe ended their life, it can also be helpful to have times of outside of a Sunday morning to bring in. I know our mobile crisis team has been brought into churches to just have multiple staff sit and say, hey, for these from nine to 12 on Saturday morning, we're going to be available and anybody can come. Students, and these are people who work in the mental health field who will just sit with you and talk with you around how you're handling it, let you know if there's other resources that you could get connected to so that your church knows you don't see this having to like go away immediately. We have extra supports here that can be there for you. And knowing that this is a this is a safe place to ask these questions. I know what our own church, it wasn't after a suicide, but after I preached about suicide on a Sunday morning, we had a QPR training afterward on, on a Wednesday night. And it's just an hour and a half. And we just said, if you want to know how to talk to people who are thinking about suicide, it was a way to empower the congregation to say, you all know, or many of you knew, as we did like a, a time for people to raise their hands, someone who's ended their life, how can you become more equipped to have these conversations? So it's a way of not just helping with the healing and the grieving, but empowering people to say, what is it that you can do? So getting into that conversation about suicide, I feel like many people would have come to a place where potentially theologically there's this framework of, well, it's probably just demon possession, you know, mm -hmm. that they, they, Satan won that one. Mm -hmm. So how would you encourage people and just churches as they think about mental health and yeah. demonic right. stuff? Because my, my senses are people thinking that. Yeah. Well, one of the things, there's a few different things to say about that. One of the things I will sometimes say to people with a lived experience of mental illness who have struggled with this framing that their mental illness is just demonic possession is Jesus knows what you're going through. Because in Mark 3, the Pharisees thought Jesus was possessed by demons and his family thought he was, quote, out of his mind. So Jesus was being misdiagnosed on two sides. <laughs> wow, I've never thought and about this. It's just interesting wow. to think of like both those people misunderstanding. That's amazing. Um, so 
it can happen where you can have even Jesus. It happens to Jesus. him. And wow. it just shows you there's a, so some people would conflate those and say, because of some similarities, like if you look at, I believe it's John five uh, and the man who was chained that, man, there's some of those experiences that look similar to the sort of experience that David and first Samuel was going through. Um, but or not not going through, but acting like he was going through. But to mm. me, what we see in the David experience in First Kings, where he's trying to act, as the text says, insane, mm-hmm. uh, is that there is this category that they knew about. Even the king who he was acting insane towards said, do I need more madmen in my uh, kingdom? Wow. In other words, now we don't use those terms for good reason anymore. But it just shows that David knew this was a category of experience. The king knew this is something that a lot of people struggle with in my own kingdom and society. And yet the biblical authors would have known that that's an experience that's different than the experiences that you see in the gospels around demon possession. Now that doesn't mean Satan can't be at work in someone's mental illness, just like Satan can be at work around my greed or my lust or Mm. any other area that could be an, a chink in the armor by which the enemy could, could seek to do damage. Mm. So to me, it's not about saying, oh, let's just be good modern mental health professionals and say there's no such thing as the demonic. I think Mm. M. Scott Peck had even written about being a therapist and in certain situations saying there's more here than meets the eye. Mm. So it's not to say that that doesn't exist. I just want to have a more, a wider scope of what that looks like and less of a focused, it's either demonic possession or it's it's nothing. Yeah, wow. Uh, So that's a lot, but there's just some at least... um, signposts Mm. maybe to point towards and thinking about this. And I think it does more damage. I run a spirituality group for a number of people who've walked away from the church who now we're beginning to take steps back, but they've just felt, and there's always two sides of every story, but there's been a lot of damage done by things pastors and other people have said about people suffering with mental health struggles that people have interpreted as rejection and have walked away, whether it's just conflating it all to sin or to demonic possession. And it's not to say sin and demonic activity aren't real. It's just to say, let's be wise and winsome about when we bring it up, to whom we bring it up, and and make sure we've done our due diligence to ask questions and to get to know a person before we go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that story in Mark 5 where we see the demoniac and the pigs, right? And that yeah. crazy story. Yes. Um, but I love that instead of being fearful, it said all the people were afraid, right? Because he was screaming in the middle of the night. Yes. He was cutting himself. I mean, it's a very clear mm-hmm. understanding of cutting, but there's a demonic uh, realm to it. Um, I love that when Jesus and his disciples get out of the boat on the other side of the lake, Jesus asks him a question. What's your name? Yeah. It's so humanizing, you know, and I think we can categorize people and dehumanize people at the same time. And so and what I'm, what we're hearing you say is the, the balance between personalizing and humanizing versus understanding there are some diagnoses that can and should be uh, addressed and acknowledged. Um, but, you know, what is your name? You know, yes. it's so easy to just throw people in that theoretical category rather than say, I want yeah. to know you. Yeah, that's great. And I think it opens up. To, to the pastor that you may not know exactly all that's that's going on mm. there. And that what's your name and can I get to know you and walk alongside you is something you can do regardless of what Satan is trying to do to destroy them mm. or what their sin is doing mm. or what trauma that they've experienced is doing. Any of those things could precondition what a lot of people talk about. And I feel like I've seen the reality that even in families, there are preconditions and predispositions that mm. 
people are going to have. But even if you don't know all that, you can move towards it mm. with that same idea of I want to get yeah. to know you. Yeah, and and that came up actually. Uh, it was about uh, four or five months ago. I was upstairs at Whole Foods uh, in Plymouth Meeting, PA, and uh, was just doing some work. And there was someone who clearly was struggling with some mental health issues and was beginning to bother and pester the, the little girl sitting at the table by herself, thinking that uh, that her father, who had left her for a few minutes, had like abducted her. And it clearly wasn't. And I was kind of looking, uh, sort of tilting my head to someone else on their computer. And so we realized we need to kind of intervene. And and uh, so he was, he was really scaring this girl. So we had to get up and talk to her. And I remember the Holy Spirit just dropping that Mark 5 reference in my mm. brain and thinking like, what do I do here? Is this an intervention? Do I get angry? Do I get upset? He's scaring the girl. It's escalating. And I remember just walking up to him saying, hi, I'm JR. What's your mm. name? It was the only yeah. thing I could think of doing. It was yeah. just like that Mark five, like, so what's your name? And he gave me his name. I said, well, I'm JR. And, and I said, what's your name to the the other guy uh, who came over to help. And I, that was the first time I was meeting him right there. <laughs> and so I said, so where are you from? Oh, what did you eat at Whole Foods today? And so we just, yeah. in some ways I was kind of deflecting away from the little girl, but uh, that wasn't because I'm amazing. It was just like, I don't know what else to do. And I think the Holy Spirit just sort of reminded me of Mark five, like just ask him his name. Ask him his story. Well, to go full circle, <laughs> when, you, when you guys were bringing up earlier on, like what can the church do? The mental health system, though we're trying to get better at it, can oftentimes just, we don't see you as just, what's your name? It's, are you a patient? Are you a client? Are you a resident? Those are all identities versus, no, who are you? And the church can provide relationships. And I know you guys do it renew the community dinners. And I've had people come up to me within the mental health system talking about how much they enjoyed that dinner saying they mm. you know talk to one of you guys and it's a different way of them thinking about relationship mm. well they've the way helped they think about you know maybe humanized <laughs> like yeah. Uh, I think of one individual, and I don't want to say his name, but every time, and he, he struggles uh, with some mental health issues, who comes up to me every time and uh, every single time, and he goes, JR, JR, I need you to bless me before I go. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe it happens to yeah. you too, Doug. Yep. And so uh, he literally just stands in front of me, lowers his head, and closes his eyes waiting for a blessing. And I'm like, uh, I even thought on a Saturday afternoon when I was mowing the lawn, knowing we were having community dinner, I was like, yeah. he's going to ask me. And as I mowed the lawn, I thought, what blessing will I give to him? Mm. And I thought he's helping me be a better yeah. leader and a better pastor and being spiritually tuned in to think he's going to ask me to bless him. How, Lord, do you want me to bless him? And he actually brought me closer to Jesus yeah. in his mental health issues. And I just, uh, that humanizes me too. It's not just mm -hmm. me being or us being the hero as leaders to them, but but they're actually helping me trust Jesus more. Imagine mm -hmm. that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and just to name real quick, like the scope of what the simple fact that you guys are doing that, I've had multiple times where I've been talking to people in the county mental health field and telling stories about Renew mm. and, and been at trainings telling stories about Renew. People mm. go, what, where's this church? What, mm. what are they doing? Mm. Point being, you guys are just being you, mm. <laughs> trying to walk with people regardless of where they're coming from. And that's what so many people in the public mental health system need mm -hmm. is people to do that. And it's great to see, you know, there's been a lot talked about within like, how can the church be a, we're going to go to them rather than come to us. And I, I just had a church recently where there was a homeless woman had been abused sexually, couldn't go on a Sunday morning to a church because of how many men were there. 
and a women's ministry at this church said, oh, well, we'll just invite her out to like go for walks in the park with our women's ministry. Mm-hmm. We're going to go to where she is instead of saying, no, 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 it's Sunday morning. You got to come to where we are. So the church just doing stuff like that, which is just the church mm-hmm. at its best, doesn't just impact her. It's really like causing people to perk up in the public mental health system when they see the church mm. being the church because they see the need. Well, your words are kind, but Doug and I would both say we learned that from you. Yeah, seriously. I mean, there's no from way. watching you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've been our friend, but also a mentor in this category. And so thanks for equipping us and helping us where I have the cheat sheet. I have you where I can just pick up the phone and be like, Dave, I don't know what to do. Help me here. And I've done that a few times over the years. So thanks for equipping us and for equipping a lot of other pastors here in this conversation. Yeah. And and I think too, I, I just love what you say because the the dream is is that None of these things ever get in the way of what community can actually be. And I think I've heard you said it, but I've heard other people say it too, but a community without the disabled, and I think even people with Mm. mental illnesses Mm -hmm. would fit into that category, is a disabled community. Mm -hmm. And what I love, I think, you know, the the same, the blessing guy, we'll call him. Um, (laughs) One of my favorite stories is, yeah, every time I see him, he asks me to bless him. And one of my favorite times was watching him then go around and blessing his friends. Mm. And it's like, that's discipleship. And that's mm. that blessing of realizing, mm. yeah, these, I, I think what's so beautiful about the church is these aren't our clients. This mm. is my family. right? And that changes everything. And what I appreciate is that there are people in both camps looking to say, how do we create that family and what can that look like? And mm. so it's just been such a blessing and such a beautiful expression to watch people. There's there's a there's a lady that we know really well who the first time we met her was on suicide watch. Mm-hmm. And we've watched her whole life transform because of the intersect between what you've done and then who you've asked us to, you know, who just giving us that referral and and building relationship and completely different person now, five, six mm-hmm. years later, to, you know. JR and I had the beautiful opportunity to baptize that person a few years ago. Mm. And, you know, this woman's whole life was changed because she was able to get the help she needed in the space that she did. And then she was able to be grafted into a family. And it's just been this beautiful place to see. And it just gives me so much hope. And it's like one of those things where, yeah, I mean, as I think sometimes pastors can get in the mode of, well, we're just here to help people. And so we almost look at people like clients instead of looking at them as people who've been created in the image of God. And we get the chance to to watch the miracle take place in front of yeah. us too. So. Yeah. And even thinking about, you know, meeting her on Suicide Watch. And yet I still tear up when she serves me communion. Yep. <laughs> right? This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is blood shed for you. And thinking it was Christ's death. But here's a woman that she didn't even want to be standing here a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And now she's handing us elements. Like, I get pretty choked up about that. Yeah. It's pretty moving yeah. stuff for me. Yeah. When she hands me those elements. Yeah. Yeah. How repeatable is any of this? Like how yeah. much can this be done in different spaces? And I think one great resource for pastors to consider is who are the people in their congregation, A, with a lived experience of mental illness, uh, B, family members of someone with lived experience, or C, people who work in the mental health field. Any of those people can become champions of this type of work and can create inroads for you into the world of human service providers, the world of mental health community 
And you as the pastor who have a hundred things to do, don't mm. have to, this doesn't have to become your only, your main thing. If if it's not going to be you, which some churches it is that, that pastor, because they have a passion. I have local pastors, son living with a mental health struggle. He just wants to be about this. But how can you really unleash people in your congregation mm. who care about this and see what can be done mm. by equipping them and just thinking about who are those people? Mm is one thing I think pastors could do moving forward. Dave, thanks so much. Um, I want to ask that you would um, send us out with a prayer, a prophetic prayer for this integrated church. And so sure. if you could pray for us sure. and those listening, that'd be great. Father, we see doors opening in our communities, in our mental health system, in our churches, to see you work and to see people come together who typically wouldn't come together to join and help people who are on the margins, help people who are in desperate need of community and of people, as we said, who will just get to know their names and treat them as people first. So we see you going before us and you at work. Please continue to open those doors and by your spirit, help us to see spaces where we just need to be interruptible. We need to be willing to slow down and get to know people. And I pray for the pastors who are listening that they would even be able to slow down and ask who are the people in their church that are going through these experiences that they need to maybe give some time to, or and who are the people they can potentially equip and empower. But in all this, we recognize that this is a challenge too great for us in our own strength. So we rely on you. We depend on you. And we thank you for the example of Jesus who came to live among us into our space and to give his life for all of us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. such an important conversation. Um, I, I know, JR, you and I have talked before about how as pastors, this is one of those places where we have always felt very ill-equipped. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so grateful for Dave. And as I alluded to it in the interview, in some ways it's, we, we sort of cheat a little bit because we have Dave we and do. we can call Dave and say, what do I do? Even with that though, we still feel ill-equipped. And so not everybody has the luxury to have someone like Dave on a quick phone call, but, uh, that's why I had so many great resources available. Yeah. And, and we are, it's feel, it feels like a tidal wave of resources in <laughs> some ways, but I'm really grateful for, um, just the, the ways and the time that he put into equipping pastors and just seeing that heart to say the church needs to do better at this. We need to be more formed in this. We need to figure out ways to help people who are struggling with mental illness. And even that, the statistic he said from the very first uh, show that we chatted with were 20, you know, the pastor average and the national average is right around a quarter. Yeah. And so to think, amazing, you know, uh, one out of every four people that walk into the doors of our church are yeah. struggling with yeah. some kind of mental illness. Yeah, big or small. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so, you know, Dave was so generous, not just with his time, but the amount of resources he gave us. Yes. And that we've listed on the show notes. And so we just want to encourage you all. There are too many there, and that's intentional. Yes. I mean, with something so significant, uh, Dave worked hard to make sure that we had 
too many resources available to us. So um, it's one of those two, by the way, if you missed the first, uh, this was part two. So if you missed the first one, make sure you go back and listen, or maybe even re-listen. What does it look like for us as pastors with our own mental health and how do we strengthen that or get the support that we need, uh, even as we're helping other people. So um, yeah, those resources are available for you. And uh, certainly we have a few questions. So Doug, what are, what are a couple of those questions that we want to, we want to offer our listeners? Yeah. So First question is this, out of the different numbers and resources that you see on the page below or on the show notes, we would love for you to put in your phone right now the important numbers. And so suicide hotline, um, what are, uh, maybe even you might have to do a little bit of digging, but to find places where you need um, the crisis line for your county. And so what numbers do you need to put in your phone right now? Uh, The second question is, what is one resource that you could utilize right now with someone in your church? And the third question is this, who is one person that you need to connect to about this? Yeah, so we want to we want to challenge you with that, and uh, we hope this has been really helpful for you. Please let us know if this has been helpful for you. If there are other future topics you'd like for us to address uh, on the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, and if you're enjoying this podcast, would you do us a favor? Would you write an honest review on iTunes or other locations where you may have your podcast downloaded? And, and would you be willing to share this with other pastors who may? enjoy this or benefit from this, or even share it on social media. We'd be very grateful. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week.